Well, friends, we continue in our study in the book of James. We're in the second chapter now. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 13. Last uh, week, Pastor Charlie emphasized the importance of living out your faith, which is a major theme in the book of James. And in fact, next week, we return to uh, that thought again as, um, as James uh, continues to echo the importance of us not just saying what we believe, but living what we believe. And today, our message does not talk about living the faith, not in those words. Instead, it talks about our holding on to the faith. Holding on. Let's read together. To those that are able, would you join me in standing? My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, and if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place and yet you say to the poor person I'll stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool haven't you made distinctions among yourself and become judges with the evil thoughts Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. So if you commit adultery, uh, do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Listen, church. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Listen, church. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God. He expects us to hear it, and he expects us to live it. You may be seated. So today we look at what it means to hold on to our faith. And we need to hold on to our faith 
like you would hold on to the handles of the racing uh, roller coaster. I loved that story that Pastor Blake told recently about being on the roller coaster at Knott's Berry Farm. We need to hold on to our faith just like we would in one of those uh, circumstances. We grip our faith even tighter whenever we are tempted to show favoritism. Now, really? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, he's not saying grip onto your faith when you're tempted to and then you fill in the blank one of these sins that made God's top ten list, you know, over in the Ten Commandments. Right? This is all about showing favoritism. James says when you're tempted to treat one person better than another based on their outward appearances, whenever you're tempted to do that, hold on to your faith. And he places this issue right here as we gather together to worship. He's not, he's not giving us advice about how to conduct ourselves there. He's talking about how we are to conduct ourselves here, right now. To James, if our faith has permeated our life, if we hold on to the faith, if we have a continuing, ongoing possession of our faith, then we're not going to look at two different people with different outward appearances and treat one better than we would treat the others. In verse 1, the command that's here is to hold on to your faith. It's an imperative. The natural outcome of holding on to our faith is we're not going to show favoritism. The way you know if you're holding on to your faith is how you treat people at first blush, at the outward appearances. And then James gives an example that was easy for his original readers to relate to and frankly translates very easily into our modern church culture. He talks about two different people, guests, coming into a meeting, likely for the first time because they needed help knowing what to do. They didn't know where to sit. Now, their newness was not the only thing that made them stand out. Neither of them conformed to the normal socioeconomic status of the group. And by the way, I think that status is probably the biggest barrier for people to cross to get to the gospel. It's bigger than languages because we can always translate, and it is bigger than culture because we can always adapt. But this is a big one. If the socioeconomic status varies greatly, it's very difficult for people to reach those people 
And in this case, on either end of the spectrum. And James here uses some language in the original uh, language that indicates that these people are at far extremes from one another. One of them is ostentatiously rich. He speaks of the gold ring that's on his finger. Now, most of us are wearing a gold ring. I don't consider myself extremely rich. Perhaps you do. I don't. Uh, it's very common for us in their day, not so much. It was a person with great authority, maybe a signet ring. Or if it was not a signet ring, then maybe it was a ring that gave special status to a person, like the father put on the hand of the prodigal son when he came home. Regardless, it's a detail that jumps off the page that says, okay, this guy wasn't just rich, he was stinking rich. He was filthy rich. He was extremely rich, but it's not just that. It's the way James in the original Greek describes his clothing. It's brilliant. It's shiny. It is, it is sparkling. It is, it is worn to attract attention. He was very rich. He walks in, and so does a man who is desperately poor. And again, we find out when we look at some of the original language that he was desperately poor. There are gradations to poverty. The man wore a filthy, foul, soiled, dark document. In fact, his garment that he wore was likely an undergarment. That's all he had. And it was likely the only garment he had, which is the reason it was so soiled. And if that is the condition of his clothing, I wonder how clean he was. So here a man walks in, ta-da! And here another man walks in. Dressed in a desperate, would it be safe to say inappropriate way? Now, throughout the book of James, we're going to find that James likes extremes. When James writes, it's bold print all the time, underlined all caps with highlighters, and that's what he did for us here. And he's doing this because he wants to jar us. He wants us to think. This morning, as I was enjoying my first cup of coffee, my thought was, well, at least in the church that James writes about, both of these men walked in the building and were at least invited in. I'm not so sure we share that similarity with James's time. 
I'm not so sure the second person. Well, both of these people are waiting for the usher to seat them. Where do I sit down? And it's likely someone that was a quasi-leader in the church had some kind of authority that they're speaking to at this time. And James is setting us up to be disgusted by the action of the people who gave one a seat of honor and treated the other differently. Why? Why is James elevating showing favoritism to the level that when he tells us to hold on to our faith, he's not talking about something that's happening in the red light district or something that's happening in a rage of fury, but he's talking about this. Why? Because the very nature of God is that he is a just God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality. When we show no partiality, we are reflecting the nature of God in our decisions. And when we don't, it doesn't matter what the text is for the sermon that day or how wonderful the worship team led us in the latest of contemporary music. It doesn't matter. Because when we show favoritism, we are not reflecting the God whose image we bear. He does not discriminate. He shows no partiality, and neither should we. Treating guests unequally is wrong. Because when we elevate one guest, we're discounting the other. It's wrong. So the act of escorting the wealthy man to the preferred seating and the poor, desperately poor man, likely in tattered, filthy underwear, not giving him equal seating is wrong but it's actually more wrong than we've described. Now he gave them two choices, stand over there, which is just saying, your comfort is unimportant to us. Now that's wrong. You with me, church? But see, it was worse than that because the alternative was he gave him a place that he could sit. Where was it? At his footstool. Yes, you can come over here and sit at my footstool. And we learn from the psalm, Psalm 110, 1, that the footstool is the place that is reserved for our enemies.
So we honor the one and we denigrate the other. We say to one, come to this place of honor. Because of the difference in the way they smelled and the difference in the quality of the clothes that they wore, that was the difference. They knew nothing about either of these men's character. You see, the scripture isn't teaching us here that we can't show honor to a person of character. It's saying we don't give preferential treatment to someone based on how they look. I actually think it may be a little worse than this. Is it possible? I think at the heart of this, the reason a person would discriminate is because they have viewed coming together to church as an arena to get something from someone else. Why else would they treat the rich man better than the poor person? He has something. The other has nothing. Well, James shakes us. And he says, don't you know that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Chapter 2, verse 5. That if you're just going to look at these different people as classes of people. The rich are the ones that drag you to court, that don't pay you enough, that defraud you. That's what James says. And the poor of this world as a class, as a category, are the ones that are rich in faith. And so you've reversed it. Your prejudice has reversed what you should do just based on what you know of both classes of people. So why are the rich in faith often poor? Well, I think because when they do the right thing, it's on full display. That's what brought notoriety to Billy Ray Harris. Perhaps you know the story. Harris was panhandling in his regular spot in the sidewalk in Kansas City when Sarah Darling dropped some change in his cup. What she didn't know is that her engagement ring slipped off her finger and went into the cup. Harris didn't notice it either. He just said, thank you. At the end of the day, as he was counting his money that he got panhandling, he noticed the ring, and so he went to a jeweler. And he showed it to the ring to see if it had any value. Now again, he didn't know where he got the ring. He just knew that he got it. He didn't know if somebody donated that to him or if it was given by accident. So he wanted to know what's it worth. And the jeweler right there on the spot offered him four grand. He said, I'll give you $4,000 for this. In the news report that I read about this, Harris was tempted. But then he thought about his grandfather. His grandfather raised him to be honest. And he said, no, thank you. 
The next day he goes to his regular spot and Miss Darling had noticed by then that her ring was missing and so she was hoping that he would be there and when she showed up he was there and he gave her back the ring. See, when someone with that kind of need does something like that, it just pops. And so the poor are said to be rich in faith. Maybe because of that, and maybe because when you're desperately poor, you are dependent on God for your next meal. Now, I'm thankful for my next meal. I know what it is. My wife's got it in the cooler out in the car. We're going to eat it on the way home. I'm actually, church we're a member of is having baptism today. I'm hoping to be able to swing by there to be able to see it at the end of the service. I know what my next meal is. Cold chicken. It doesn't get much better than that if you're from Texas. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm thankful for it. But I know what it is. Not everyone knows what their next meal is or when it will be. I think about the refugees we just prayed for. And so your faith is built because just the necessities of everyday life it's just elevated how dependent you are on God about that. And when believers honor someone because of outward appearances, they are honoring someone who may not deserve it. And if you're going to do it at random, and if you're going to do it at outward appearances, James says, you've got this backwards. You're doing it the wrong way. Now, James is not arguing that we don't treat rich people well. He's just arguing that we don't treat people differently. I think the argument should be made that we treat everyone well, and that's where James goes next. He talks about the royal law. Now, James refers to what we typically call the great commandment, he calls it the royal law. And he references that in verse 8. He says, if indeed you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So the standard is not treat rich well or poor poorly or treat poor well and rich poorly. It's just the logic of what he presented makes you stop and think. And then he tells us what we're to do. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And whenever we show favoritism towards one and we denigrate another, we have broken the royal law. And then James ratchets up the intensity once again about the importance of holding on to our faith because he says that if you've broken the law in one point, you've broken it in all points. 
And then he goes to the top 10 list. Now he brings it up. And he points out that if a murderer didn't commit adultery, that doesn't mean he isn't a murderer. And if adulterer doesn't murder, that doesn't mean they're not an adulterer. And just because a person's only committed adultery once, that doesn't mean they're not an adulterer. Do you see the point? Just because he only killed one person, why do I keep saying he? I need to throw some she in here too. <laughs> hey, I'm not sexist, right? Just because she committed murder. Doesn't mean only once, doesn't mean she's not a murderer. And just because the only sin we committed is that we showed favoritism, doesn't mean we can claim to be keepers of the law. And so James says, okay, church people. You're walking into your church buildings. You're coming together for your meetings. You're looking good, wearing your Sunday best. All is well. While you're sitting there thinking about how you're not a murderer or an adulterer, you are a breaker of the law if you give preference to someone based upon their outward appearance. Okay. I need to remind you as a minister of the gospel that the law does not get the final word. The grace of God does. The purpose of James' argument is not to make us feel guilty about our sinfulness, it's for us to listen closely as he tells us, stop it! How can you keep from doing it? Well, it's just like that roller coaster, you hold on. When you're, coming to, when you're tempted to come to church because you think it will be good for you in business, or in society, or in life, you hold on to your faith. You're here because you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. Am I right? Let's remember why we're here. And people that walk through those doors, whether they walk in in clean clothing or tattered clothing, it doesn't matter. What matters is the condition of their heart and their willingness to hear and respond and live the word. That's what matters. That's what matters for them, and that's what matters for you, and that's what matters for me. Okay, so let me give you three immediate things you can do, okay? There's more, but let me mention three. This one, everybody in the room can do. Smile, make eye contact, and say hello when you see one in, someone at church. Do that to everyone. 
Now, some people don't want to be hugged. Don't hug them. <laughs> but everybody wants to be smiled at. Am I right? By the way, any huggers in the church? No. All right, there's a few of you. All right. I'll hug you, but only from the side, all right? <laughs> but all of us can look somebody in the eye and smile and say hi. We can do that. Everyone is welcome at this church. Because if they are not, God won't show up. This is his church. That's what we're celebrating next week. This is his church that allows people like me to come and people like you to come. We smile, we make eye contact, we say hello. We can do that. Second, I call it the five-minute rule. Five minutes before the service starts and five minutes after it ends. Make a new friend. We, uh, we all have people we're closer to because we know one another or we're like one another or our kids play together. And you'll get around to seeing those folks. But you'll do that whether you're here or not. You with me? Make a new friend. People are not looking for a friendly church. That's a misnomer. Churches all over the country think they're a friendly church, and that's what people are looking for. They're not looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. Be a friend to somebody. It starts by looking them in the eye, smile, and say hi. And then... If you start asking questions, don't ask questions that's none of your business and make them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> How many times we do that? Don't ask them who they voted for, that's none of your business. It's none of your business. Be kind. Don't start interviewing them like you're taking notes to determine whether they're going to fit in here or not. <laughs> listen, 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 listen. Listen, the qualification to come Lakeshore City Church is that you be a sinner and be desperately in need of the grace of God. Did I miss anything? Amen. Did I miss anything? Amen. All right. Make a friend. You know... People can't agree on politics or COVID, but everybody can agree on tacos, right? <laughs> Next week they're free, yeah, so come. Well, I think somebody's going to have to pay for them. There's a basket at the back, back there. I suspect some of that's going to be used to pay for it. The third thing I want to mention is a bigger deal. Um, we can't end poverty for everyone, but the question is, can we end it for someone? Jesus talks about when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That's what Sarah Darling did for Billy Ray Harris. 
He returned her ring. I told you that earlier in the message. She shared his kindness on social media and raised $190,000 to help him. When asked what he was going to do with the car, the news report I read said this, with the money, I'm sorry, got ahead on my notes. He said, I'm going to buy a new car. I'm going to put a down payment on a home and begin fulfilling my dream of starting a house painting company. We can't do it for everybody, but can we do it for somebody? Can we do it for somebody? People around us have needs. Their greatest need is the gospel, but they won't listen to the sermon preached at your church about the gospel if you make them feel unwelcome, unloved, and less than. 